fan. Yeah. I don't think it's now anymore. We're in the introduction to the shite and sound, shite and showdown for the crown 2021 colon 3.0 plus 1.0.1 thrice upon a time two colon the quickening the the second part of what we recorded thinking was a two-part special yeah and i think it's very interesting that, that we went into this year's shite and sound shite and showdown thinking that we'd streamlined the process and instead ended up recording an episode that was uh, three hours longer than our episode last year it is which is crazy yeah, yeah. hello welcome everyone my name is Yutha Shai. and i am finn sounds nicholas uh, and, and so we just need to set up a bunch of stuff we'll be coming back from intermission at our great awards ceremony, things uh, you you may not remember, in the award categories, I have not got any of the 16 knockout films, the 16 finalists. None of them are in my category awards at yeah. all. I uh, did not nominate any personal film in any category, uh, which they had won an Oscar for uh, this year. And so we shall begin with pouring one out the the films that have already fallen in our knockout bracket another round r.i.p yeah love you vintnerberg then james and icy we said goodbye to then the green knight second place second place when we ran the polls on our socials yeah uh taken out in the first round and then judas and the black messiah goodbye as man what a good film yeah uh, and, and so you've got some exciting stuff lined up for you. Number five. They're both dads. It's about two dads. These film titles could easily be swapped. Uh, both take place in England. One is my father. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean the father. <laughs> and the other is the nest. Yeah. I do not know what one I am about to say. Three, two, ah, we start. Sorry, it's yep. a new episode. Uh, we start with a vote uh, and our main discussions of films is when we mourn them. We don't want to talk about, you know, we want to get through as many films as possible. Yeah. Three, two, one, the, the father. father. Yeah. Yeah. The nest, the nest, the nest. I saw the nest quite early uh, this year. I went into it thinking it was a supernatural horror film, right, yeah. which I still recommend as the way to see it. Like, like, even knowing it's not, there are a bunch of points where it feels like it could be. Oh. When, when that door comes open, oh. yeah. I was like, oh, and this is when the ghosts start. Jude Law, Carrie Coon, they're married. Yeah. Jude Law, he's a, he's a, he's a Wall Street financial dickhead. He's a wolf of Wall Street. He's, he's, a, he's a wheeler. He's a dealer. But everything has fallen apart for him in yep. America. So they move back to his homeland, which is England. Yeah. He convinces his wife, Carrie Coon, they're like, they should move back to England because he's like, hey, this guy that I used to work for, you know, he, he, he like wants me back at the firm. And, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be great for us out there. And yeah, so they, they move over to England with, with their two kids. He immediately starts living beyond his means. Yeah. They move into a big farmhouse, and it was the scene of them going through this big, old, decrepit farmhouse yeah, where I was like, yeah, I know, 
Obviously, this is a horror film. You're taking us through the place they will be trapped, this haunted nest. Yeah, there's like incredible 18th century manor house in Surrey, beautiful fucking building, massive grounds. And and he's like, yeah, I've I've, I've paid the rent for the year. We're going to live here. It's going to be it's going to be great. Carrie Coon, we've got plays out there for a stable so you can have your own like a horse trading business horses once again just being incredibly metaphorical yeah he's put his son into into the the, like best private school that money can buy his uh, stepdaughter he's just put her in a local school he doesn't really give a shit that much things kind of start going uh, not great for them almost immediately yeah and it's just this like slow collapse of this, like, overconfident finance dickhead. Yeah, it's an Agira plot once again, <laughs> where, like, oh, this guy's going to fuck it up, and then you just watch him fuck it up. Yeah. And so much of this film is either watching Jude Law, and you're just being like, what the fuck are you doing? And then cutting to Carrie Coon, just trapped in the detritus of this maniac's life. But, but like, also, she is incredible at uh, withering glares. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, no, she's not She's not passively taking yeah, yeah. it. I was telling you uh, just before we started recording that I have a list of the, the hottest shit in movies this year. There, there's a scene where they're in a restaurant, kind of near the beginning of the film, and Jude Law is telling Carrie Coon, like, oh, you know, I've, I've, I've got the biggest paycheck of my career coming in, like, I've only got $600 in the bank at the moment, but, like, soon we're going to be rich. And Carrie Coon just says, Okay, well, if we're going to make it, then then you can you can buy me dinner, and she and she like she calls over the waiter and just very aggressively like orders like a bunch of expensive seafood and and and, and a bunch of wine and stuff, and then, and then just like looks at Jude Law, meanly smiles a bit. I think it reveals way too much about me somehow to like oh that was when when when, when she fucking looked at him after ordering all that food, it's like oh. God, Harry. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, Sean Durkin. Uh, uh, this is the film he made after Martha Marcy May Marlene. Yeah. yeah, I, I, I. This is maybe the film I knew the least mm. about going into, and I recommend that as a way to see it. It, it, it feels like it's so strange because, like, on the face of it, it's a family drama. Yeah, but it has like. Yeah, these inflections of fear and tension and, and almost like mystery. There is yeah. something like, supernatural yeah, about it. I have not seen Martha Marcy May Marlene, but like that that's kind of what he does in that one as well, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They they are uh they're very much of of a piece, mm-hmm. but that's not a dissent. He's not making the same film twice. Yeah. I only saw this like a few days ago because it because it was on your list and mm-hmm. like, it is a really, really solid family drama. Which is also about the real like beginnings of like Thatcherism and, and the, like deregulation of the UK finance industry. Yeah, it is, it is about like what it means to be a parent and like how to have children and like take care of them. The like final cut of the film is so well timed that I burst out laughing. Uh, it's great. It's a film that is like both deceptively simple and rigorously complex. You want to compare it to like novels. It's it is it's dense. It's finely honed. I am sure that if I watched it ten times, I would come up with ten different interpretations mm. of it. It's just clearly the work of people being like, I just want to make a good like. Yeah, do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, it is a like actual drama for adults with really good actors and a good script and good direction that trust you. And it is also in that it is like the drama version of Paddington too, in that it kind of 
points out that the best utilization, like the best utilization of Hugh Grant is as a fading egomaniac huckster. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and like the best utilization of Jude Law is as like a borderline psychopath finance bro, mm. you know, like just fucking everything up for everyone. Like yeah. that is how you deploy him. And one of the things he keeps doing is like, is like lying about his wealth to try and impress people. And then there's a bit where he mentions like buying a house on the, on the Amalfi coast. And you're like, Oh, like tell him Mr. Oh, tell him Mr. Ripley. Yeah, it's on the Amalfi coast. It's your law. Great job. The nest. I love you. Yeah. Really, really, really good movie. Oh. And Carrie Coon. Mm. Great, like every time Carrie Coon in some, is in something, I'm like, why is she not in everything? Yeah. And at the end of The Nest, I'm like, it, it, it feels odd to me that The Nest wasn't like a massive moment for her. Yeah. If, you, if you're just joining us this week, uh, last year, a category awards were presented by the winner from the previous year, 2019. So, of course, in 2021, it's going to be presented by our winners from 2018. Yeah. Anyway, now Paddington bringing to the stage to announce best uh, best editing. Uh, he's opening his hat to reveal a pair of scissors and some film. It's a little bit of physical comedy, and he's giving them to to my host, my winner from 2018, who is Jennifer Lilly for eighth grade. Oh. Okay. <clears throat> my nominees are... Katrin Hedstrom for Candyman. That is maybe the best film I didn't put on my list. I don't think it's all the way there. I th- it feels a little incomplete. Uh, I'm not quite sure about the shape of it, but but it's really strong. And, and the way it, it puts things together and its ultimate point. Uh, cool. Paul Matchless for Last Night in Soho. Yeah. Uh, it's well edited. Paul Trewartha for the Sparks Brothers. Uh, it's good fun. Like that is an unwieldy film covering so much time, mm. such a diverse range of interview subjects, songs, eras, uh, uh, archival footage, and uh, like it, it's it's like two and a half hours long, pretty much, and absolutely doesn't feel like yeah, it, it, like, it, it flows yeah, yeah it, easily. It, that is a like yeah, it's a fantastically edited film. But my winner mm. is Hannah Park for Shiva Baby. A movie you do not like. Uh, I don't not li- like. Like Shiva Baby to me is like promising young woman. Right. Uh, in that it should be a film that does well enough uh, that, that you've seen the festival and you're like, great, but it doesn't make your top 10 list. Yeah, yeah. And it does well enough that the director and stars get other work. I, yeah, I don't. I don't think Rachel Sennett lands it in in the lead. To be reductive, you know, it's millennial Abigail's party. So much of it is one real time scene, and there's this building of comedy and tension and a constant tracking of multiple characters in multiple rooms. There's spatial relationships. Who can see what? Like, there's loads of really actually technical stuff yeah. in the fabric of it that it just does effortlessly, and that's all a victory of editing. Right. Paddington's got his hands full with this lot. He, oh, he, he is bringing out onto the stage uh, seemingly too many people. <laughs> he is bringing out uh, Frank Marshall, Bob Murawski, Yves Deschamp, Afonso Goncalves, Paul Hunt, Jonathan Brown, Alexander Wells, 
Peter Bogdanovich and the Corpse of Orson Welles <laughs> or The Other Side of the Wind. Uh, in my opinion, the best edited and most edited film of 2018. Yeah. The, the fact that that film exists is a miracle. That's one of those films where, like, every time there was a cut, I was like, oh, fuck. But for, like, way it moves between, like, three or four different, like, film formats and ch- changing aspect ratios and color and black and white. Such a complex technical achievement. Uh, Love that editing so much. Uh, so for both these uh, cinematography and editing categories, so I've tried to uh, have like each each nominee represent like a a different like style. And so for editing, my nominees are Andrew Weisblum for The French Dispatch, Joe Walker for Dune, Joshua L. Pearson for Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, Christian Messini for The Voyeurs, which is not a particularly great movie. I'm not even sure if it's a fantastically edited edited movie. It, it is. Very hard to like actually build sexual tension in a movie, and this movie does it really, really well. A, l- a lot of erotic thrillers are really not erotic. Oh uh, yeah, are, like badly constructed, and yeah. they're like, oh, we'll, we'll have some naked people, we'll have a murder, whatever. It'll be hot. This like does the job. Like everyone involved is clearly like watched a lot of these movies and like and like learned how to put a film like this together in a way that is both like erotic and thrilling. <laughs> there are a bunch of like really fun match cuts in it. There's a bunch of stuff involving eyes and soft-boiled eggs, uh, which is good. <laughs> Just like how the final cut of The Nest was so good it made me laugh out loud, the first cut in The Voyeurs is so good it made me laugh out loud. I, I, I do. I look forward like to it, watching The Voyeurs. And I like, I have so much time for Justice Smith, who yeah, is yeah. the lead in that. Yeah, he's, who, he's, he's great. Sid, Sydney Sweeney's great. I, uh, do you know what film I think? Like, it is a fucking massive blockbuster that made a trillion dollars. But, like, Pokemon Detective Pikachu. It was pretty fun. Oh, no. And it is like. I, I, I have faced a problem. The Ancient Mew. Yeah. <laughs> I have faced a problem throughout this year, which is, uh, I think I'm the first person to notice this and certainly the only person to really feel it, but it's been a pretty, uh, tumultuous year. It's been a bit hectic. Yeah, no, just for me though. And I also realized that having based my taste around like as the four cornerstones of, of, of my taste being, like in one corner, Joy Division and bands that sound like Joy Division. In another corner, um, a 60-year-long sentient narrative uh, about stories within stories. Uh, listen to my podcast, The Slow Path. And another corner being sad things about happy moments. And in the other corner being happy moments about sad things means that I have no comfort viewing available to me. And the opening of Pokemon Detective Pikachu, seeing that herd of Bulbasaur, the Lickitung on the train, it works for me. My final nominee, Yorgos Lampramos for The Father. The the frustrating thing about The Father is that the experience of watching The Father not knowing what the game of it is, is so vital to it working. This is not me saying, yeah, yeah. like, like uh, I have seen it twice. It is equally as rewarding on a rewatch. It is hard to talk about why that is so effective. Yeah. But he, there are so many bits of editing, as there are in every element of filmmaking in The Father, that do so many very incredibly complex things invisibly. Yeah. It is... 
uh, uh, yeah, it's mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, my winner is uh, Joshua L. Pearson for Summer of Soul, an incredible achievement to put all those like mountains of footage together in a way that feels comprehensive, but also is two hours long. Like manages to to interweave all of this incredible archival footage with modern day interviews, and like every time they they cut to something that isn't an interview or isn't one of the concerts, where they've like gone out and like found other footage of of America at that time. It is so so perfectly placed. The film builds so well. That film has like four levels to it. Yeah, in that there, there's watching the event itself, which is essentially a greatest hits collection of the music that then white people would steal for the next 50 years. Every time someone opens their mouth to sing, you're like, oh, that's right. The fifth dimension singing the age of Aquarius (laughs) slash let the sunshine in is the best piece of music ever. And then Nina Simone starts singing and you're like, Oh no, Nina Simone singing. And then BB King is playing. You have that. You have political context of the time, exterior footage. You have interviews with people who were there about the event. You have people interviews with people who were there or performing about the context around Mm. it. And you even have a fifth level, a fifth, dimension which is people literally watching the footage and reacting yeah. to it and whenever you're in one of those levels you are like this is great this should be the whole film why do anything else and then when it ever moves to one of those other things you're like no 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 this is great yeah this should be the whole film and and, and the way it flows between those things that film is so special yeah there's one like montage in particular where the like people being interviewed are talking about the, the civil rights movement that was going on at the time and like police brutality, the like rage and the hurt that, that, that like black people in America were feeling at the time. Uh, they let us put on this concert so we wouldn't riot. And then it cuts to uh, one of my favorite musicians of all time, Sonny Sharrock, this monster electric guitar free jazz guy who, who, who was like known for having just this ugly fucking sound shards of noise and like screams he's one of the great guitar players like it, it cuts to him and and for like 30 seconds he just like lets rip this this just like incredible like anguish solo as as it cuts to like images of, of police brutality and and civil unrest that that's all the sunny shark that you get in the movie i, I was hoping for like more than 30 seconds because I, kn- I knew he was in it but that sequence is like designed for me to be like oh fuck this is a film with an incredibly cogent, clear, and vital set of political messages about both that time and the present time. And so much of them are expressed through juxtaposition. And like that thing you're describing could so easily, even with those elements, in the hand of the wrong editor, you'd be like, yeah, come on, I get it. And I get that it's like... It it could feel like hacky or it could feel exploitative. But like, not sure if we've mentioned yet, uh, the movie was directed by Questlove. Yeah. Uh, I, like how dare he how dare he also be this good at directing films yes fuck him so the next face off we got two ladies returning to their old wheelhouses looking at all their old tricks in one case it's bullet time and in the other case it's just long films about repressed feelings in rural environments yeah and being like two, two, two of my favorite things movies can be about how has this changed 
Mm. What is this like in 2021? Yeah. Uh, and both of them coming up with incredibly unique and interesting answers that have unfairly faced blowback. We are talking about the, the Matrix Resurrections. <sighs> it just feels crazy that we can even talk about it. And uh, The Power of the Dog. Yeah. Three, two, one. The, the Matrix, Matrix Resurrections. Resurrections. What? I'm so sure you were going to go for Power of the no, Dog. Like, I do I do love the Power of a Dog. I like it a lot more than you do. Yeah. Uh, but also Matrix Resurrections is like, or is like my fourth or fifth favorite movie of the year. Uh, okay. So Power of the Dog is with the nest, the part of our three-way tie for number nine, just to keep that up to date. <clears throat> so Finn. Yes. That dog. Canine, I presume, Rip Bob Baker, an yeah. adaptation of Canine and Company, the 1981 attempted spinoff. No, it's a, an adaptation of a different thing, actually. Yeah, a book, right? Yeah. But it's also like an adaptation of just like men, generally. Yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, uh, written and directed by Jane Campion. It's it's her first film in quite a while. She's been doing like TV stuff recently, right? Yeah, she did. She did both, top, top of Lake. And Top of the Lake 2. Yeah. Um, top, top of Lake 2, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Irish Top of the Lake. Both Top of the Lakes are great. Check them out. Um, yeah, so uh, written and directed by Jane Campion. It's in Montana, Wyoming, uh, but shot in the South Island of New Zealand, uh, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, yeah. Jesse Plemons. That is not, no, it's starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst. Well, I'm, just, I'm naming people. Oh, no, I'm just like, it yeah. feels like Plemons has had a banner year yeah, yeah. of being the best supporting actor in a film. Yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch, Jesse Fleming, oh, fuck you, Kirsten Dunst, Cody Smith McPhee, a bunch of New Zealand people, because uh, I'm blame. Yeah, Cohen Holloway showing up because it's a film shot in New Zealand. Yeah, the the nurse from Juniper. Benedict Cumberbatch is a rancher. Uh, him and his brother Jesse Plemons, they own a cattle ranch. Cumberbatch is really into being a rancher. He loves the lifestyle. He loves the grit and the dirt and being outside and being with animals and killing things and you know. And like tanning leather and stuff, he, he loves all of that shit. He, he loves he loves the iconography of cowboyhood. Yeah, yeah. Which is, uh, while this film is set in the past, it's set it's after set like, the end of the West. Yeah, like it, 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 it's set in like nineteen ten. Anything that could be called the like Wild West or the New West or the Frontier is, in every sense, over. Yeah, he's a kind of tough, mean guy who everyone respects. And his brother Jesse Plemons, kind of a wimp. He he enjoys it, but like he he's looking for more out of life. He's a romantic. Yes, I get. He's a, a romantic and forgiving. He he is soft and Cumberbatch's heart. Yeah, there is a restaurant and hotel in the closest town to them. Yeah, uh, it's run by Kirsten Dunst mm. and her son uh, Cody Smith McPhee. Her husband, his dad, killed himself. Mm. Yeah, the film opens on a cattle drive, uh, uh, which starts the ranch and ends in in this town where they have dinner and stay for the night. While they're in the hotel. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, like you, you get this like sense of him as this like just like totally overpowering presence. So, yeah. if, if everyone is like in awe of him, and anyone who's not in awe of him, he despises and, and, and he, he, and he, he seeks, destroys. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He, he, he seeks to humiliate and destroy them. And the the way we first see this manifest is a bullying Cody Smith McPhee. Yeah, who 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 is like you know he's Cody Smith McPhee. He's like kind of willowy and lanky and and and, and like effeminate yeah yeah that which is the thing uh cumberbatch focuses on yeah. he essentially 
he calls him homophobic. Yeah. Things. Yeah. Like Cody Smith McPhee in this movie has, has you know, he's, he's got kind of a list. He, he, he's got, he's got an effeminate affect to him. Yeah. He, he, he likes, like, he likes making flowers out of like folded pieces of paper and Cumberbatch just sees this as like abject weakness, which, which has to be rooted out. Someone like this cannot survive in the world. And so they, they must be like put through a crucible that will, that will either fix or destroy them. While they're at a hotel, Cumberbatch humiliates uh, Cody Smith McPhee and Kirsten Dunst, and Jesse Plebens basically uh, takes takes pity on them. He ends up kind of falling in love with Kirsten Dunst. They get married, and then her and her son come and live on on the ranch, mm. uh, which Cumberbatch uh, does not like. He doesn't no. like having women around. He doesn't like having weaklings around, and and so he sets out to make life as uncomfortable for them as possible. One of my favorite scenes of the movie is. Uh, uh, he is an accomplished banjo player, and he's always sitting around playing his banjo. Kirsten Dunst likes to play the piano. Is, isn't great at it, but like, but like it, it's, a, it's a thing she enjoys doing. Yeah, and and, and so her husband Jesse Clemens like buys her a like grand piano so she can practice and like has something to do to enjoy herself while she is practicing. One day, you can just hear upstairs every note she's playing, kind of like haltingly on the piano. Cumberbatch is playing along like perfectly on his banjo. Rooms away upstairs, it's just like faintly through the walls. Yeah. And it's just, it's just getting to her. She, she can't handle it. It's getting like louder and more forceful. And he's like showing off more and more of a banjo. He just has to humiliate her. He can't let her just like have even a moment of like joy or peace. It's just this like very troubling psychological drama of these two people being kind of driven in different directions by the like machinations of Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, and masculinity mm. being weaponized uh, against both of them yeah. uh, in different ways. Yeah, Kirsten uh, is driven to drink, gives a be- best actress, if, if, if I didn't have my rule. This film wasn't on my list. And that is because I think, like, I have always liked rather than loved Campion's mm. work. This is my uh, first Campion no, I've seen like maybe twenty minutes of an angel at my table, but like that's that's yeah. it. And like angel at my table is still my pick, right? The thing she has going uh, for her that I'm never going to fucking deny is a she knows how to work with actors. Yep. Like not a bad performance in any of her films. This is the best Benedict Cumberbatch has ever been, and, and, or like, will ab- ever ab- be. Ab- absolutely, like, he, he is one who like I. I always like enjoyed in Sherlock. He's fun, and, like, but that's he, like yeah. performing rather than yeah. acting. No, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's giving like a fun, silly, like TV performance. Yeah, yeah. The, he's the, playing the, a superhero. Yeah, he's he's one of those guys who you like. Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's like he's on TV, but like he, he's he's not he's not a movie star. So this is the first real like movie star performance I've well, seen from yeah, him. Yeah, like that is as much as I enjoy Doctor Strange for how fucking weird those visuals get. Yeah. Its biggest issue, apart from not giving Scott Adkins enough to do, and you know, Tilda oh, shouldn't have taken that role. Cumberbatch just isn't a movie star yeah. yet in it. Like even casting him as Turing, which should be a home run, mm. it just does not quite. I mean, there are other problems with that film, yeah. mainly the ambiguity. I don't know what people call those machines today. <laughs> like here, the, the like sense of him being this like overpowering force of of like charisma and implied violence like works or and colonialism, yeah. right? Like they made this with Benedict Cumberbatch, the man who's complained that he, he is typecast because he is posh uh, in the South Island, making this. That's a major psychic event right there. <laughs> Man Campion knows how to look. She knows how to cut. I would not 
remove a minute of this film and and like the fact that this film is kind of structured in a way where it feels like you know what the film is and then every 20 minutes or so you get a revelation or turn where you're like Oh, so the whole film has been about that. And then you look back at the previous, how 20, 40, 60, so on. And you go, like, oh, yeah, it's all about that. You know, Um, it is really great. Like my issues are high level issues, but it is that I think like the second half of Titan, ultimately what this film has to say kind of to be mean boils down to like, it's a bit tough being a do, you know? <laughs> What's better than this? Just guys feeling blues, <laughs> you know? And it is and it is doing a little more than that. Obviously there's the sense of him as a thing out of time. Yeah. But it, it is it's just another kind of crisis of masculinity thing. And and there is the fact that there is the reveal of spoiler. <laughs> uh uh but I think uh, yeah, because you should still watch it. It's on yeah. this fucking list. This is a recommendation podcast. Watch Power of the Dog. Yeah. But I think the reveal of the the nature of spoiler, mm. the thing we learn about Benedict Cumberbatch, it's a bit hack. It's a bit easy. Yeah, which I'm sure is that's like from a book which was written oh, yeah. in the like 60s. Oh, okay, we're, we're fine. Like- okay, that's, that makes... In, like, the 60s, you, you can, like, hang a story on, on, like, that twist. I think that Campion you knows that you can't hang a movie on that twist anymore. And she she doesn't. She, like, focuses more on, on like, building, like, an actual friendship between Cody Smith and Benedict Cumberbatch and then, like, mm. how that kind of breaks down near the end. And, 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 and juxtaposing that against the degradation of Kirsten Dunst. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, like, stuff with Cody Smith becomes about, like, how adults and like people in positions of power try to force like shame and repression on on, on young people, and like th- this movie is ultimately about like a young gay man who decides to like no I'm I'm fine as I am I am I am a good person who is like worthwhile and, and I, I I do I do not need the validation of like violent men who are obsessed with their own power yeah I really like that that's like where it gets to I, I'm men. I, I had not thought about it in those terms. You saying that has made me like the film more. I, I still prefer The Matrix Resurrections, yeah, yeah. which does also say that. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, no, actually it does. Anyway, but it is, oh yeah, it's an incredibly strong piece of work. All of my complaints are high level, like intellectual yeah. complaints yeah, Campion, I just, I always feel that, like, Campion ends up making beautiful, incredibly performed cut and shot films that are a bit like, a bit incredible thoughts <laughs> from Popstar, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. they're a bit like, what if a garbage man was actually smart, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, it's a movie called Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> Fuck, you're right. Power of the dog. I love you. Goodbye. Finn. Now, Paddington coming out onto the stage. But oh no, Finn, this time that's not Paddington. This time Paddington is computer generated. Yeah. He is here to, uh, he is bringing out the first host to announce best VFX or animation. Yep. Is clinging onto the back of Miles Morales. <laughs> Star of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, yes. the best animated film of that year. 
my nominees for this year are Zack Snyder's Justice League, one of your only moments in a superhero movie in the past few years where I felt like you like you 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 were actually doing what can be done with this medium. Is the scene you mentioned earlier of the Flash running so fast that he reverses time? You see the planet like rebuilding underneath his feet. And you see Superman's like bones like knitting back together and his flesh covering that scene alone. I'm like, yeah, sure, great job. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Suicide Squad, King Shark and Starro, both look really good in that movie. That is of of the films that are made entirely on fucking green screens yeah, and yeah. post processed, and that is so one of them. That is one that both a doesn't look at, but b also looks at and kind of uses it as an aesthetic. Yeah, which is also like the key aesthetic success of the Guardians of the Galaxy films, yeah. which is as much as they aren't fucking. Chris Pratt Marvel films, they are like, they're the ones who are like, no, let's fucking. Yeah, let's do something. Wait, with this. What if this shit looked weird? It is sad that now, like, Thor Ragnarok and like fucking Infinity War all took that because it was, it was unique then. Yeah. Yeah. Piper, you mentioned earlier, if it's like shot in, in reflection of, of a Peacekeeper's helmet, which is. The Peacemaker's helmet. Is, yeah, is, is, yeah is, is all, is all VFX. While you're watching that fight, like you, you fully believe that you are seeing a fight reflected in a helmet. You will believe a like, man can a, see a fight reflected in a helmet. It, like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's really good. Next nominee is uh, the Matrix Resurrections. Not like not as groundbreaking or as like fully perfect as the Matrix is in, in terms of it, it, its its effects, but like nothing is ever going to be. No, there absolutely will be. But the the problem is is that to be that groundbreaking will require Avengers budgets, yeah. and also that that it will probably be like I think the equivalent like because what what they did in in mainstreaming not inventing yeah. bullet, bullet time was decoupling space and time in cinema, and then uh, they invented a sense performance capture in the sequels. Yeah. And it's like the step after that is Gemini man and Billy Lynn. And it is someone getting that to work as the thing. And it is kind of like, like I kind of wish that this was a like matrix resurrections is 120 frames, 3d. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. It's always going to be trickier. Yeah. And everything it tries to do, it lands and yeah. like the people who are made of, made up of floating sand. Yeah. And then like that shit usually looks bad in movies. No, and, and, and they, and they get it right. Yeah. 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 All of the like robot designs are, are, are like really, are like really good. There's one that's like a, a dolphin stingray thing is uh, super it. cute. Yeah. Uh, that dude's great. There's a <laughs> section with, with reverse bullet time. The thing it leans into that is surprisingly not actually in the original trilogy is traditional slow-mo is actually shooting things with high frame rate cameras and then doing weird things. And yeah, it's not trying to recreate the matrix. Uh, my next nominee is Evangelion colon 3.0 plus 1.0.1 first upon a time by far my favorite of the rebuilds, the best looking of the rebuilds. Oh yes. It's, it's the first one with like 3d CG stuff. I think really works. There's this like really weird scene. Uh, where, uh, look, okay, you'll you'll never believe this. There's a scene in an Evangelion movie where Shinji's being fucking mopey. He's, he's refusing to eat for, like, days on end, and finally getting fed up with his fucking bullshit, Asuka grabs a handful of bread and, like, stuffs it into his mouth, and it's it, it uses 3D in a way to, like, simulate, like, a handheld footage. It's really, like, interesting and weird, 
the, it's the best the fights have looked in one of the rebuilds. I, like my joke tweet at the time is we are all laughing, but actually Hideaki Ano is in the pocket of big fluid simulation. <laughs> and then, of course, there is the fact that the last 50 minutes of that film is a psychedelic freak out yeah. on a scale that is genuinely hard to like we won't attempt to express it no because it's a massive fucking spoiler but also is like how do you explain some of what you see in that yeah and like you now understand why i had to be like you actually have to watch yeah, it you yeah. won't under anyway no, absolutely yeah final nominee is june Okay. Uh, and uh, my winner is Dune. Yeah, uh, Dune. Uh, uh, is my review on Letterboxd was like that. There are two. Uh, there are now two answers to the question of how what what is the moral thing to do when you have two hundred million dollars to make a film. One is to crash an actual plane <laughs> into an actual building, like in Tenet. Mm-hmm. We both did it. We both did the gesture. And the other is to make Dune because Dune is so clearly a horrifically expensive film, but every dollar is on screen. Every dollar is on the screen being used judiciously for everything that is fake. There is something that is real. So it is very often hard to tell the difference. You don't know what they built and what, what is CG there. And it is like the thing about June is that if June's budget was $199 million, it would be worse. Yeah. Not in the way that like if Black Widow's budget was $100 million less, it would be exactly as good as it still yeah. is, you know? There are like a million different things to talk about in regards to the effects in June, but I'm going to pick one thing, which is, this is the first movie I've ever seen where force fields look good. People have been trying to do this for decades, and in that first fight scene where Paul fights Gurney Halleck, I was like, oh, they, they fucking got it. Just straight off the bat, they figured out how to do it, they made it feel totally natural, they like way that the shields respond to things is, is such impressive visual effects work. <laughs> the amount of fucking care that went into everything in this movie is so, is so beautiful to me. When the bit of when you get that, you know, the big attack and you see the bombs falling on the, um, the force fields and you're like, I have never seen something like that before. Oh, okay. Here are my nominees. I've gone a different way uh, in that I'm treating this as best animated film because, uh, I think there have been a lot, a lot of really strong animated films this year, all of which have big enough flaws that I wouldn't put them on the list yeah uh but i i think it's worth giving them a shout out my host is coming out he's hungarian he looks weird it's ruben brandt from ruben brandt the collector hungarian art heist film check it out it's really unique and beautiful so my nominees are Encanto, the Disney film, it was uh, directed and written by Jared Bush, uh, written and co-directed by Charisse Castro-Smith, and co-written by Brian Howard. It's a big mainstream Disney film, but its heart is in the right place. There's a good joke in every scene. Uh, it's sweet. Its message is good. Like, it's it's a main, it's, it is the best, this film gave me the feelings everyone else seem to have from Moana. It's lovely and touching and weird and subversive and crunchy. Uh, Luca, which is uh, this year's Pixar, mm. um, uh, written by Jesse Andrews, 
co-written and directed by Enrico Casarosa. Mike Jones was the writer and Simon Stevenson was also a writer on it. Uh, and it is in some ways Pixar by numbers. There's a quirky protagonist who's uh, stuck in one place and, but he learns to love it by being thrown into uh, another out of sorts place. But it does this with the Little Mermaid narrative where Jacob Tremblay is a weird fish like <laughs> he's kid friendly shape of water. Yeah. And he gets forced uh, into this small, uh, I believe, Spanish town and, and, you know, makes friends and learns. And so the angle is like, what if the weird place someone goes to in a Pixar film was was the real world and it has like it is it is both sad and inevitable that like pixar is now like boring but if we didn't have every other pixar film we would love this and it and the way that both of these films are made by uh I believe Hispanic people and forefront Spanish. I mean, not as much as they should like how, like the, my biggest non-political mark against West side story is that they are cowards and there's not a whole, there's so much Spanish in West side story unsubtitled. Great. But there's never a scene that's all in Spanish. Yeah. And I was so ready for the scene where Chino tells Maria that, that, that Bernardo was dead all, all in Spanish. And that, and that, right, Tony, yeah. and that Tony killed yeah, uh, yeah. Bernardo. I was so really like, yeah, this is it. Because we know all the information. We mm. know what he's going to tell her. You're going to play this whole scene in Spanish. Uh, and Because and, I think that would be great. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and they don't. But, but anyway, Hedwig and the Witch, the Ghibli film, the first 3D animated Ghibli film, n- not my favorite Ghibli <laughs> film. Not my favorite Goro Miyazaki <laughs> Ghibli film, but I think it is unfairly shit on. I think Ghibli have found themselves in a new economy because capitalism is terrible, yeah. where their old way of making things is just no longer financially viable, yeah. and that is the because, world's because, fault. Because capitalism hates Totoro. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And Hedwig, he is exploring and trying, Earwig, sorry. Yeah. Earwig, he is trying to find the way to do what it find the Ghibli spirit, but made cheaper. Mm. And it doesn't get all the way there, but it is much more of a success than a failure. Right. Uh, and people shouldn't be so mean to it because f- if they keep going down that line and find the right way to do it, they can keep that beautiful, like itchy humanism in Ghibli alive. But my winner is The Mitchells versus The Machines. Yeah, it's a fun, charming movie. Yeah. like it a lot. Don't like the final act, but like every, everything up to bed is, is super fun. Looks great. Uh, written uh, and directed by Michael Rianda and written and co-directed by Jeff Rowe. Yeah, it, it's on Netflix. It's great fun. It's a pity that the last 20 minutes turned into blue laser uh, superhero shit. But yeah, no, yeah. Uh, uh, great fun. Check it out. Showdown number seven. Here we have... It's a Blade runoff. We got Villeneuve looking David Lynch right in the eyes and saying, we're the bagpipes, bro. And Ridley Scott looking me too right in the eyes and being like, have you had someone mansplain this to an audience yet? (laughs) 
it is June versus the last Junal Jewel. The last Jewel. Three, two, one, June. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's June. June. It's June. Uh, like, I don't hate the last Jewel, yeah. but I, I have pretty major issues. So you. Right. The last Jewel. Yeah. Why, why should I like it? Uh, my main things with the last Jewel are. I love three of the four main performances. I think that Matt Damon is doing a serviceable job, but like he he the, is yeah like, he's like, yeah. the he's number four yeah like yeah. he he has the least interesting character and he also brings the least to it. There is like a certain extent to to, to which like Matt Damon is like taking one for the team there because like that, that kind of has to be the least interesting character. Ben Affleck in this movie is is I, I think just magic. Uh, the best he's ever been. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And like I. I, I like Ben Affleck. I, I think he's yeah, been yeah. doing like secretly pretty good work the last few years I, in movies no one cares about. Here is the thing about Ben Affleck. I think Ben Affleck's biggest problem is not his acting, it's Ben Affleck. Yeah. Him and Damon at high school, they, they also wrote this, uh, with uh, Nicole Holofsener. Uh, yeah. Affleck and Damon at high school with theatre kid nerds who would like at lunchtime run scenes together and yeah. talk about technique. And I think in both, I think the thing that makes both of them interesting, uh, but especially Affleck, is that neither of them are really content to be leading capital L leading capital M men. Yeah. Basically all Damon has done the last like 10 years, uh, like uh, uh, apart from the Martian, which is uh, his, his only real like leading movie star role. Well, and Jason Bourne. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like him showing up for a few scenes in like a Soderbergh movie. But like, yeah, Affleck yeah. is looking at the, Affleck plays like, uh, 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 like this local duke. Yeah. There's this like decadent count. And this bleach blonde hair, it's, like a it's business so, surfer. It's so good. And like, we, we, when the trailers came out, when this movie came out, people were so mad <laughs> at Affleck and Damon's haircut. Just another example of, I think, full-on media illiteracy and inability to see like historical dramas as anything other than like, this, this has to accurately reflect the past. Otherwise, it's a failure. Pretty explicitly, what Affleck and Damon and Holofcena and Scott are trying to do with this movie is, like, make parallels. Damon's haircut is a hockey mullet, and for Scott, that would be... It's a football hooligan haircut. Yeah. And, like, Affleck's blonde hair... The kind of, like, sketchy bad boy at school. Yeah. Yeah. Adam Driver is... Adam Driver, uh, a giant, massive uh, lump of meat, animated with two of the saddest eyes, the widest nose, and the most kissable mouth in cinema, you know? Yeah. Affleck, for the past few years, has been in, like, real sad bastard mode. Yeah. Like, 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 his incredibly relatable. Like, his and Snyder's take on Bruce Wayne is, like, this guy's a fucking failure. Like, everything he's done has gone wrong. Being, like, driven to... He's been like driven to violence and fascism by the fact that he can't yeah. ha- he can't handle his own failures in like Triple Frontier, which I watched a few weeks ago, and kind of rules. He like very like he is also very much in like oh man, I'm a soldier. I've done a bunch of bad shit, and I I do not want to have to like revisit that. But like once once he's in it, he's like feeling the pull of it again. Or like in the in the way back, where he's playing an alcoholic basketball coach, he's doing really really good like sad bastard work but and also then, we're gone girl yeah oh yeah absolutely yeah and then, and then in this he is just like leading loose he's like piling on the charisma there's <laughs> ham yeah. there's cheese he, he's piling on the like smarmy sleaze it's so much fun to watch there's, there's a bit where he like he like pulls up his skirts to like yeah. show adam driver some shoes like which one do you like better there's a moment where he says the word cunt better than anyone has said it in a movie this year 
I don't like when Americans say that word. I think I think they're bad at it. Yeah, uh, but like he he does it he does it great. Like this is a film about rape culture. Yes, and, and the three male leads are kind of three aspects of, of rape culture. Yeah. And, and Affleck is this diffident, distant. A guy who who knows it happens. He just doesn't really care. He's got all the power. Yeah. Like, I'm so down with almost everything mm. about this film. My issue is on, on, like, a major structural level. The way the film is built is we see the beginning of The Last Duel. Uh, then we get a title card that says, The Truth According to matt damon yeah and then for 30 or 40 minutes we get the story of what led to that last duel from matt damon's perspective yeah. which involves adam driver assaulting his wife jodie coma in the second we get the truth according to Adam Driver. You know, it brings another perspective on the story. Yep. And because we have been distinctly told these are their two perspectives, as an audience member, I'm sitting there going like, ah, great. You've set a, a, a algebra problem for me. You have given these two sides and I am smart enough to fathom what the truth is. And so it builds to the scene. Adam Driver does not believe that what he did with Jodie Comer was rape. Yeah. And we see this in a scene where it, a playful teasing moment that ends up with them in bed together. Yeah, it's, it's like playing with, with like ambiguity or where the lines between consensual and non-consensual. Yeah. But like you, you can tell because of the way the film presents it, but like, this is not how it went down. Well, this was not it, a consensual act. But well, it was, and, and on because, Jodie Comer's part. And because it, they, they play their hand a bit too heavily, like Jodie says no too much and like she's saying it in a playful way but you're like oh no she was really this was really a horrible mm, thing yeah but then you get the truth according to jodie coma and then according to jodie coma disappears so and it's just and the, truth. the truth stays on the screen and, yeah. and then you get everything you just were like oh that's what must have been like happens mm. so for me and that's the longest part that's maybe an hour of this two and a half hour film Maybe. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I was just sitting there being like, I know, I know. And this is going to build to a really harrowing uh, rape scene, which does occur. And to be clear, uh, including rape in films, I don't think is default bad. I'm not joining those fucking weird Puritans. Yeah, yeah. But it is the thing that like the more effective version of that scene was when we were watching Adam Driver show us it as consensual knowing it wasn't that yeah. was more upsetting that got the violence across better and it's just that those first two segments do such a good job that i do not need the third part yeah i don't disagree with that but i also think people would have gotten way madder at the film if that third part didn't exist that that's ultimately the problem right yeah, yeah. it's either condescending or not explaining it. Yeah. I cannot remember who said this, but there was someone I saw like a few years ago talk, talking about like Rashomon style films. One thing that like Rashomon does, which everything that copies Rashomon like gets wrong, is at the end of the day in Rashomon, there is there is still no truth. We will not and cannot know that. Yeah. And every other one was like, here's all these different perspectives. Eventually like, no, this is the right one. There's no ambiguity here. Which I think is just like I, I think I think Rashomon makes a more interesting choice in that case. Or, or like when you're trying to make like this like explicit like political allegory, it's less about being Rashomon and more about like here is how like men perceive the world 
versus how like a woman who is victimized by these men sees the world. I can see the argument of the third part is like obvious and heavy handed. Yeah. I think that Jodie Comer is really fantastic in this. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and my solution mm, mm. would be I'm brought in into the editing room. I'm like, so Ridley, sit down. Two questions. One, you were the first designer assigned to the Daleks at the BBC. What would you have done? Second, have you thought about taking out this third part, taking the coma-centric scenes and putting them in the previous two parts and then uh, putting them in black and white, grading them differently? Mm. So it's like you suddenly dip into another perspective, out and in. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because it's the structure that's the problem. So, like, what if it is, like, okay, Ridley, I'm from the future. I know you want to make a big mainstream hit. Have you heard of millennials, though? <laughs> uh, they're going to kill it, apparently. Yeah. So, but, like, what if... Not me. I'm Gen Z. I went to see it in a theater. So, so, so did yeah, I. I. As, as, leave my generation alone. We're too busy realizing that you're never going to own a house. I, I never had that. I'm in the arts. Every yeah. all the millions were like, I'm never going to own a house. I'm like, you thought you were going to own a house? <laughs> I will sometimes think about like about owning a house, and I was like, oh, I will, I will have to win lotto to do that. That's that's the only conceivable way I'll ever own a house. But like Ridley, what if? We go gonzo. We remove the structure and it's like, so when we see scenes from two different perspectives, what if we're hard cutting between them? What if there are times where we see the same scene twice? Boom, boom, just straight over each other. What if sometimes it's split screen? I think Mm. it's formal restraints hurt it more than help it. I'm not saying that simply you would remove that act. Sure. But also... To make a film of this scale on on the subject of rape culture that is firmly about, like, all men are complicit, Uh, a lot of the time men think there is consent when there isn't, and putting that in the face of, like, number one hunk, Adam Adam, Adam Driver, it's good. Yeah. You should check it out. Um, The Last Jewel, I Love You. Like, one last thing I want to say is, like, one of the things I do like about the, like repeating structure is for, for like one or two scenes you 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 like do get to see three times and for, for like main one is 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 there is a party with, with Matt Damon and Jodie Comer go to where Jodie Comer meets Adam Driver for the first time and seeing the like the three like slightly different perspectives on that scene and seeing how much has changed like just based on how like Jodie Comer's face changes in the three different tellings yeah, is like yeah. is fantastic <clears throat> for the stats it was tied for twelfth. Uh, that was the tie with another round. So, Paddington. Oh, it's not Paddington. It is making their debut to present. It is Uncle Pastuzo from the Back from the Dead. His uncle the, in Peru oh, who oh, dies. Right, right. right. <laughs> and bringing with him my winner for best debut for 2018, which is you're never too old to make a start. This elderly German actor, it's Lutz Ebersdorf <laughs> from Suspiria 2018. Oh, look at him. So real. Go listen to our Children of Men and Suspiria episode. Yeah, hear more about Lutz Ebersdorf. Yeah. My nominees are Leslie Grace for acting in In the Heights. Which one was she? She's the lead. Okay. 
uh, and I'm also nominating Rachel Ziegler from West Side Story. Yeah. Uh, and like the key thing both of those films have that I think is comparable is that their cast are just these bunches of absolute fucking charmers yeah. like anthony ramos as much as he loves to cheat on his wife on tiktok apparently oh i just loved spending time <laughs> with them uh, <clears throat> matthew saville for writing and directing juniper he's made a bunch of shorts and tv but like that's an accomplished first sure, yeah, feature yeah. i didn't love a lot of it this is a, a, a pretty big one you've always got to honor people trying out screenwriting for the first time so it's alan moore for the show uh <laughs> alan because uh, like the major issue with that film is that alan moore has not seen a film in 30 years and has only written pro he he has written spoken word but that's rarely narrative right. uh, uh he has written prose and comics which are things that require exposition at a different rate yeah and like the major problem with the show is that you are told every piece of information literally five six times more than you should everything is repeated and it just you just need someone and that's why it's a debut good work but my winner it for writing directing and starring is jillian wallace horvat for i blame society i blame okay. society is a film about a woman who wants to make a documentary about how good she'd be at being a serial killer yeah. and uh, she starts killing people you know it's a commentary on on millennialism you know the the end of each of all of the trailers is the bit with her having a glass of wine while sitting next to a corpse taking a selfie going i just think i'm living my best life it is more complex than that it doesn't land it it is a frustrating film because all of its ideas are good and it often ends up taking the path of least resistance out of it but it is a really strong debut i'm really excited to, right. to see what she does next and the performance she gets out of herself as the lead i can't think of like because so much of it must have been her alone or her with like yeah. one or two other people i can't there are so many films made under that scenario where you're like well the directing's good but like but this is good Check okay. it out. Uh, I blame society. I have uh, kept this to uh, uh, just uh, best first film. My presenter coming out is Bo Burnham for Eighth Grade. Uh, my nominations for best first uh, feature film uh, are Florian Zeller for The Father, Amir Khalib Questlove Thompson for Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, Michael Sarnowski for Pig, Rebecca Hall for Passing, and Josh Greenbaum for Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Barb and Star is like not perfect, yeah, but it is a really, really weird comedy, and I really respect how weird it is and how silly it is, how bizarre the tone is, and, and the, the like. Fact that it will move between like weird, like superhero, like knockoff, and like a musical into like a ro into like a romantic comedy, it, into like a comedy about these two like weirdo women being friends. It's really good. It's really funny. Uh, Rebecca Hall, yeah, just does a fantastic job directing passing. She, she gets like great performances out of Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nigger and Andre Holland. Alexander Skarsgård has like two scenes, which he's, which he's really good in. Great looking film. Uh, I want to see what she does next. Really hope she gets to do more cool stuff. Mm. Pig by, by, by Michael Sarnowski. Yeah, man, you, 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 you got to make a first movie with Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Rocks, and you got 
like and he, and he got one of Nicolas Cage's like best recent performances out of him. Yeah, in a time when Nicolas Cage is putting out a lot of good performances, and, and same with uh, Nat or Alex Delete were applicable wolf. Yeah, a bunch of a bunch of really strong performances, really strong command over like tone and like moving between tones and like how and like how to shoot things that are horrific and 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 like and things and things that are beautiful. We've already talked about Summer of Soul, but like the like first film this year that I saw was like. I want to see whatever this person does, like forever, is is Florian Zeller. The father is su- is such an incredible debut, and uh, it rocked my shit. Getting that performance out of Anthony Hopkins at, at at that age is astounding. Final round of the heats. These are two films about people who think they are looking for something but really they just want to talk to their father. It's Evangelion, colon, 3.0, plus 1.0.1, Thrice Upon a Time, and Pig. Three, two, one. Evangelion. Yeah, yeah. I knew, I knew you were going to go with Evangelion. Okay, yeah. so convince me to not go with Evangelion. I'm not going to be able. I'm not going to be able to. It's your favorite movie of the year. I do not feel as strongly about Pig as you do about about Evangelion. My pick for best movie has already gone through. So I'm like, <laughs> you're being nice to me. I mean, yeah, like, like I but like there are so many good things, yeah. and I I'm so aware that Evangelion is such a me thing. Yeah, you watched it. It's yeah. it's really really good. Yes, it, no, it is. It is a maybe the most singular creative statement made in this year. Yeah, that the one of the biggest directors in Japan is doing it to end his biggest franchise. I also know Pig is excellent. It feels like a count, like, Pig should go further than this. Pig is so strong. Yeah, Pig is, is one of the movies that, like, I'm most, like, annoyed about missing in the theater this year. I, I had my ticket, man, like, lockdown was announced. There was, like, so much nuance. It'd be, like, lighting, and the use of, like, lighting and, like, shadow in this film. It's, it's Nicolas Cage giving one of his best performances in a in a run of like really strong performances recently, so that is, Evangelion goes through. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah. Like, keep talking about Pig. The thing I want to stress is that like, Pig deserved. There was no kind matchup. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? These were all tough, but Pig, especially, deserved better. I yeah. think. I think everyone pretty much like know, knows the premise of Pig. It, it, it is kind of being missold to people, and I think I think purposefully. It, it it is being sold as like Nicolas Cage John Wicks because of because his pig gets stolen. Yeah, and it is not that. It it is in terms of plot, it is it is sort of that I guess. But but like in in, in terms of like tone and mood and like how it and how it like resolves conflict, it is just, it's the opposite of John Wick, really. Yeah, it, it, one of the most interesting things about this film, yeah, it being sold. As it, it, there's no so little violence in this, it's a it's a talkie. Yeah, it, and it, I just was kind of expecting it, right? Yeah. Like I I thought I went into this going like, oh, it's he he's killing people to get his pig yeah. back. But, but like there are two scenes of violence, and both of them are Nicolas Cage getting the shit beat out of him. Yeah, well, and there's of course the time when he's stealing the bike and yells, "Yeah, yeah," uh, which is I, I want to be clear, pig. 
this is an exquisite film. Yeah. I can absolutely understand the argument that it is the film of the year. But but the bit where he is stealing a bicycle and in one shot he just scrambles over to a bicycle and struggling with the bicycle. It's like dinging him in the face. He turns to look at Alex slash Nat Wolf delete where applicable and goes, yeah, is like, Peak mimetic Nick Cage. Yeah, which is basically a thing he also does in Prisoners of a Ghost Land. Yeah. Where he's being like sent out by Bill Mosley to, uh, to, to, to like find Sophia Batella in the radioactive uh, wastelands. They've like given him a car to go and drive out and find her. But for like some reason, he, he decides he doesn't want the car. And so he just goes over to, there's like a bike leaning up against a wall and grabs it and starts biking off on it while he's wearing a leather jumpsuit with like pulsing. Like red, like bombs on his on his neck and his on his elbows. He's just like he's black and long on it. It's great. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Pig is about former professional chef who now uh, lives in seclusion in the woods outside of Portland. His oh, his only company is a pig. It's uh, it's 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 his it's his truffle pig, which he uses to find truffles, which he even sells to Alex Wolf or the other one. Who can tell? Yeah. Uh, Not even them. It's a prestige there that they keep yeah, switching. They're, yeah, they're just in so deep. Yeah. Yeah, so he just spends like all day hanging out in his little shack with his pig and just like making food. This pig's his best friend. It, it opens with like five or ten minutes of them going about their daily I, routine. These idyllic shots yeah. of them in the forest. And it is it just, yeah, just there's like beautiful contemplative footage of, of Nicolas Cage just like. It's been real nice of a pig as they just like look for dirt for truffles and stuff. And I, and like your feeling is like, oh man, I love this pig. Yeah. And like you immediately get it. It does the same thing that like John Wick does with the puppy where it shows you the puppy and you're like, oh man, it's a great puppy. It is taken from him and he must go into the city, which is Portland and go through the seedy underworld of, you know, restaurants. Yeah. yeah. And he, he like uses his, his, his like old connections in the, in the hospitality industry to yeah. like try and find his pig. They're all essentially just like long slow burn emotional conversations where someone like talks I don't know where your damn pig is and then Nichols goes like well I remember when you worked for me (laughs) you liked to crack pepper (laughs) you always been turning those things but I see your car I look at your collar and all I see is salt what happened to you and they're like god damn it your pig's with Geronimo (laughs) and it's just the it's just yeah, it, it, it's, it's all just, these incredible like duologues or scenes of, of people just like trying to atone for past sins while food is being prepared yeah it's so good as we said at the beginning that scene in, in the fancy restaurant with david nell is one of the scenes of a year uh, yeah if 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 she didn't if that one through the car expo that ends with her dancing on the car into town didn't exist yeah it would he, Oh, I mean, using the voice in the author copter. Yeah. Oh, God. Film. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the end of the, the, the end of the Matrix Resurrections. Yeah. Like the beginning of the Matrix Resurrections. Anytime Fred Hampton gives a speech. Pig is, of the movies that have been sold as John Wick, but this is the best one. But it's just not. Yeah, no. Like, like, and, and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And like, and like that's kind of why it's the best one it is so much its own thing it, it is always finding like 
interesting ways too to resolve scenes or resolve character conflict. There is one scene where Nicolas Cage is beaten up and he's he's bruised and he's bloodied and he's just wearing a big coat and he's hairy and beardy and he looks like shit. He's he's walking through the like suburbs of Portland. He walks into the backyard of a backyard of a house where, where where him and his wife used to live. There's like a five or six year old kid sitting on the back stairs, and Nicholas Cage sits down next to this kid, and starts like just talking with them about this house and how he used to live there and what's changed in the intervening years. You just know the scene's going to end with the kid's parent coming out and being like, "What are you doing talking to my kid? Get away from her! Get away from her!" And like it doesn't. It's just this like really lovely scene of of Nicholas Cage just, just like having a chat with his kid. It's about how this kid is a kid, but it, it, it's not like condescending to the kid. It's like this this kid is like a real person who was able to experience and like understand their world kind of like gets what Nicolas Cage is talking about. Every scene they find compelling ways to resolve drama that you haven't really seen in a, in a movie like this before. Well, and it takes what is a very linear plot mm. where everything is like obvious mm. and like you kind of know where it's going. Yeah. And yet it still feels fresh. And it is like the thing that really sticks with me and the reason I hate eliminating it so much is that it is just an incredibly tender film about forgiveness, trust and love and what it is to be a parent and what it is to be a person. Like the plot, the John Wick butt of it is just set dressing to take these two characters through arcs where they have to forgive themselves and then share a meal together. And it is just, it's such a fucking special thing. Yeah. And it is, it's so good. Hey pig, I love you. So it's supporting actor. We should also say, Gender binaries are n- not are false. Uh, gender is uh, a spectrum, and, and true egalitarianism would just be having a, a lead in a supporting performance. Thing. Yeah, yes, but uh, acting categories are the most fun to nominate, and we li- we like to give out more awards and talk about more good performances. Yeah, uh, we do, we haven't really capped the amount of noms. Uh, we just want to talk about the most people possible. Yeah. So, uh, shambling out to present the Best Supporting Actor Award. It's Tom Waits from, from A Ballad of Buster Scruggs. <laughs> the nominees are Jason Momoa for Dune, Sean Harris in The Green Knight, David Harbour, No Sudden Move, John Cena, The Suicide Squad, and Ben Affleck, The Last Duel. For Dune, I was just trying to figure out like which one of those supporting guys you give it to. Yeah, I came down on, on, on Momoa eventually. Like it, like it very easily could have been Isaac. Like Chang Chen, like yeah. I mean, like I, 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 I do wish Chang Chen had more to do. All those performances are great. But I think like Jason Momoa. Uh, I think maybe because he's in, like he gets to be in more of a film than Oscar Isaac. And what, what a fucking charmer! It has the Aquaman thing of like well deployed Momoa. Yeah, is like throwing you know some white phosphorus on the ground, like using it well it's brilliant and blinding and like yeah he gets how to deploy momoa yeah sean harris and the green knight that's my boy just one of the like saddest performances i've seen this year yeah i've never seen anyone play king arthur they're like sad and decrepit and broken and like as i said like it is all in his voice and his physicality there's no like old age makeup you know like making him like 
walk around with a cane or whatever, not like putting postures on his face. It's just like he is just like brilliantly conveying death of the age of heroes. Lo- loved every second of of his performance. Uh, David Harbour, no sudden move. I have never gotten David Harbour until until seeing him in no sudden yep. move. Uh, I'm right there with you. Such 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 a good like like pathetic weasel performance. An absolute loser. Uh, who, like who a, can't just catch a, a lunkhead, yeah. You know, just this big, like unwieldy chunk of man. Yeah. For, for anyone who hasn't seen it, there, there is a scene where he has to go and talk to his boss and try and convince his boss to give him a document, and his boss won't do it. And so he starts having to fight his boss, and he's just apologizing the whole time as he beats as he beats up this old man on the ground. John Cena, Suicide Squad, probably the best I've ever seen. Cena, John Cena as as Peacemaker is such great casting, and James Gunn. Like has a really really good angle on that character, and which and, is to make him an adaptation of Judge Dredd. Like really hone in on both the like pathetic hypocrisy of that character, yeah, and also the, the, his just like total belief in in like the goodness of American power to like play the actual interiority of that character while also being as funny as he is 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 incredible well and like you know how they they pre-announced the the peacemaker tv show when they announced yeah. the film and like going into like what's the point of a peacemaker show starring john cena and then after that film you're like how are they gonna make a tv show about that fucking yeah. guy jesus yeah and my winner is affleck for, for the last year basically have not had more fun watching it watching an actor on screen this year the the craziest thing about the the last duel is that Affleck and Damon wrote it for them to be the leads, yeah. which is kind of inconceivable because it has to be like there is such a power in the fact that it is Matt Damon who is a decade past ever being an Adam Driver, maybe yeah. two, and then Adam Driver, who's the current Adam Driver, and that Ben Affleck is another over-the-hill seed guy. Yeah. You know, like it is... He's so well positioned. He's having such a good time, yeah, like, and he's yeah, he, so he, disgusting. Yeah, it, it is so nice to see him just like just having this much fun with, with a character who is this over the top and this silly, but also like this like filled with like real menace and violence and power. It's the best athletes ever been. Yeah, it's a joy to watch. So now. Uh, Coming out on stage is my presenter, my winner from 2018 for Best Supporting Actor. Is that? It's a ghost. Oh, no. Okay. He, he's taken off his hat. It's Topher Grace from Black Landsman. <laughs> my nominees are Brian Tyree Henry in Godzilla vs. Kong. Uh, he is having... Uh, so he's just having a good time. He is like that film... Uh, is a guilty pleasure, but he is the only innocent part of it. Oh, no, no. The other innocent part is the fact that the way... Is is Rebecca Hall saying Kong vows to no one. And King Kong can communicate psychically (laughs) with a girl through sign language. The success of that film is that it is good fun. You should see it, but it is absolutely nowhere on this list or really mentioned anywhere else. Uh, Jesse Plemons in Jungle Cruise, (laughs) where he is playing a German general during World War One, clearly as Christoph Waltz leading a submarine as he chases the rock Jack Whitehall and Emily Blunt up while before they end up fighting Agira. 
from the wrath of God. Like, everything you've told me about Jungle Cruise makes it sound good until you get to the, the Dwayne Barock Johnson bit. There was a, like, weird, like, in- adventure movie directed by Jean-Claude Serra, where the villain ends up being Agera, and, and Jesse Clemens is in it. Like, that's... Jungle Cruise is Ted Lasso. Thing- and then it turns its fans into raving psychopaths. <laughs> no, like, the thing about Ted Lasso is, is that it's good. Uh, is is that it's a solid piece of entertainment, and we have been so drenched in compromised in some way work yeah. that we 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 are blinded to the fact that like Ted Lasso is just a nakedly commercial. Like it started as a series of ads, but it's like fine. And if that was the default of what was on TV, if that was the median, yeah. it would be great. Jungle Cruise is fine, and if that was like the median of what Disney was putting out yeah. and they weren't, you know, the boots stamping on the face of humanity. Yes. Yeah. It's not, it's not unworth watching. Yeah. yeah. Rami Malek in no time to die, uh, in a year where action films went mythic. Uh, I just think his evocation of the bond villain as this kind of, uh, Ilfin ghost drifting full of hate and pain through the world as a kind of distillation of all the villains before him is great. I just, I generally love Rami and, Malek. Uh, and uh, what, what, what's that character called? <laughs> Lucifer Satan. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a fucking James Bond yeah. film. Yeah, that's great. Um, <clears throat> Jeffrey Wright for... Uh, no time to die because I just fucking love Jeffrey Wright. Yeah. He's having such a great he's, he's time. Given, he's given such a weird performance in that movie. Love yeah. it. Sam Richardson in the Tomorrow War, which is uh, uh, last week we were like, this is basically a list of recommendations. Die, Tomorrow War. Yvonne <laughs> uh, Strahovski also good in it, but it's like Sam Richardson is the funny sidekick, but who's given an emotional arc. And he is funny in the funny bits and, and fully commits to the emotional arc far more than a film about the crisp rat go into a tomorrow war that becomes a today war so he can get together with his dad, J.K. Simmons, you know? Evil John Mulaney as Riff in West Side Story. Yeah. Mike Feist or no, something? I have evil young John Mulaney written down here. Oh. Uh, that's that, That's who he is. Yeah. Good, uh, uh, but my winner uh, is is Aidan Gillen in Rose Plays Julie. Rose Plays Julie, a a film that I don't think gets all the way there. I think at points it becomes kind of parody drama, like what you would sarcastically make as an art house drama. But its ideas are strong. Mo- like it, it, its supporting performances, especially, are really good. Yeah. And in in a year uh, of films about rape culture, and and there will be there will be many many more years of that in the future because it's a real problem. He plays a rapist. Uh, and that's, the- that's so unlike Aidan Gillen. Yeah. He, 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 he- Usually plays just like totally, totally good-hearted, kind men. But there, yeah, there is a moment when he he's hitting on a woman, and she's turning him down, and she keeps turning him down, and then you see a switch flip, and you see the aggression come out, and it is uh, uh, it is it's horrifying and painful, and he does uh, a really good job. It, I wish that film 
got there. Yeah. Because what it's aiming towards is really good. All of Brady is also really good in it. Um, but yeah, that's my winner. So now this ain't going to be fucking easy. First quarter final. It's really hard to theme these at this point because it's, it's just statistics. We have two films about human beings. <laughs> One, a fable about how we can never know, truly know our parents or ourselves. Petite Maman by Celine Sharma. And against it. The Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, the documentary debut of Questlove, a document and reflection on the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival. Three, two, one. Petite Mama. Yeah. The Summer of Soul. I, I had, I was aware of this film, but I had not seen it. Yeah. This was one that was supposed to play in theaters in New Zealand, but when we went into our, our lockdown this year, yeah. like the, 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 the release window passed. And so it, it just, it just never, it just never played in Auckland. Yeah. And it was on your list, but not mine. Mm. Uh, and so I got to watch it for the first time yesterday and I am still on a, contact high yeah. from it because this film contains basically everything i love down to it starts with white text on black cards about the source of the footage yeah. you're going to watch it it is in 1969 there was a concert series in harlem for the majority black audience of majority black performers though the Puerto Ricans put on, put put in a showing and are yep. represented in the documentary, and everyone from BB King, Stevie Wonder, Mavis Staples, and Nina Simone, mm. which was shot yep. for television broadcast, though it was never sold because of racism, yes, uh, and because it was an incredibly political event. Like the highlight of the film for me is Nina Simone reading a poem about blackness mm. about being ready to be black 1969 they say was the year they stopped being negroes and became black and, and it is about the rise of this oppressed class and race in, in america and kind of across the world having a moment where you can be like no there's there's more of us mm. than them which reflects on the present day yeah it is a like real like documentary version of of the thing that like small acts like it did in fiction so well last year historical recreation and fiction last year which was like showing like the the like importance of marginalized communities being able to like have their like own spaces and their like own opportunities to express themselves and create art and build communities together yeah. and how that is the most powerful form of protest a year after the death of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King, at the same time as they were going to the moon, these people got together. The, the fucking moon landing sequence is so, is so great. Like, one of the days of the, of the Harlem Cultural Festival was on the day that Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. But, like, 40,000 people are at this park in Harlem listening to, like, The Temptations. The documentarians, like, going around asking people, what do you think of this moon landing stuff? Like, what does it mean to you? Why are you here rather than watching it? And so some people are like, yeah, no, it's, it's pretty cool if they went to the moon, but like, 
like that that doesn't mean anything to me there are so many people in need here why not give us that money is the repeated refrain yeah quest love puts that after montage of white people being like oh it's the bad it's the peak of human achievement we're geniuses it plays constantly this game of juxtaposition that never is cloying but always makes uh its point like there was a lot of gospel music represented and that's the moment uh, uh, in the film when he decides to get really into the politics of yeah. the moment, and through that, like the and there's the politics of Christianity and how uh, for the black community in America, the church has been a place of organization in the sense of like labor organization, and so there is this gospel singing which is. You know, gospel singing to me is an overwhelming but awe-inspiring, beautiful wall of noise yes. against people talking about how lost they feel. And yet, the way it manages to speak to the, the modern day isn't by then going, and now, it it's simply by, like, the mayor of New York at the time visited, uh, a man who was famously not uncomfortable with, with with people who weren't white like him. Yeah, yeah. He, 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 he was a fiscal conservative. Yeah, yeah. like a white Republican. But, but like black people loved him because he yeah. because he was just like normal about them. Just including that. Yeah. At no point does anyone in a talking head or uh, go like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> these days that had never happened." It is so densely packed, and, and the meanings it creates. Like, this is fucking obvious, and obviously Questlove knows it because of who he is and the work he's done up until this point. But, like, this film understands and does an incredible job of expressing that the power in black art and in all art is the message, is the politics. And just making this film that is like, look at these just incredible performances of wonderful songs and then think about what they mean and understand it because they mean that and that's why they're good. And I just think that's such a gift to give to an audience. And it's so, it's such like a good time to watch as well. Yeah. Like if you just want to watch it on the level of listening to a bunch of incredible music, it fully functions on that level. Well, and like, as you pointed out, and like this is kind of like the big line on the film is that this is the same summer as Woodstock, yeah. and of course everyone knows Woodstock, yeah. even though it, it Woodstock just seems to be like three days in a fucking ditch. And the thing is, beyond Hendrix, culturally, what survived Woodstock? The hippies did nothing. The, the Harlem Cultural Festival was the future. It's obscene. I'd never heard of it. Yeah. It's obscene that this footage sat unused for 50 years because it's not just like the footage looks great. Yeah. Everyone looks so good. There's there's a great interview with someone who was a kid there, and he talks about how one of the singers in one of the groups was just the most beautiful person in the world yeah. to him. And he is just like, oh, so she was my first crush. And he's, he's and he's talking about that in the context of like, for the first time in his life, being like, oh, everyone is black. I yeah. have a place to be. And uh, is and having that articulated to us who are white <laughs> and being like, oh, Matt, like, yeah, that must be finally receiving that thing that we take so for granted 
Oh, it, there's just so much to this damn film. I'm so glad you made me watch it. I'm just so glad it exists. Yeah. I just think it'll break. This is one of those films where I'm like, I just don't know anyone who wouldn't like it. I don't know who it, where it wouldn't brighten anyone's day. Because even if you disagreed with the politics of it, and let me be clear, if you disagree <laughs> with the politics of this film, you know, the ones that are like, uh, maybe we shouldn't kill black people, uh, stop listening to the podcast. It sounds real good, and yeah. there's there's good jokes, and it's uh. and, and it's just like tons of of like fantastic like sixteen mil footage of of like massive crowds of of like incredibly dressed people in Harlem in nineteen sixty nine, and like the fucking coolest people in the world like singing soul music, you know, like a Sly and the Family Stone and stuff. It rules. If you have like any interest in the music of the sixties, you have to watch this. If you have any interest in like history of of like black like culture and radical politics you got to watch it if you just like music documentaries it's 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 one of the better ones you'll probably ever see yeah like just there is no reason not to watch the content is great the form is great yeah it was uh, uh the third part it was the third of the three films tied at number nine uh creating oh, what a triple bill this would be the power of the dog the nest in summer of soul there would be uh quite a time but hey summer of soul or when the revolution would not could not be televised i love you and now coming to the stage full regal get up she's announcing best supporting actress my winner for for 2018 is of course the best supporting actress of the year, that's Olivia Coleman in The Favourite. It would be absurdity to look at that film, uh, <laughs> uh, to look at Emma Stone and, and Rachel Weiss's performances and not think they are the two leads. Uh, yes. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> uh, the nominees are Marina Mazeppa in Malignant, who pl- she plays the killer. Right, yeah. 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 Young Yun Jung in Minari, mm. the grandmother, which was the one that missed out. It yep. was the one beneath uh, uh, number 13 on the list. I think that film is magical. It's kind of hard to, to pick individuals from it to praise. It's an incredible ensemble work. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. I, I, I also like Minari a lot. Last year we we had an ensemble award. I think if we still had it this year, I probably would have given it to Minari. Yeah, we just had too many awards last year. Leia Sadu and No Time to Die because yeah. I am making a point about how the success of No Time to Die is the performances in it as well as yeah. the action. Catherine Hahn in his standard. I've always got a reserved spot for Catherine Hahn. Unfortunately, this year she nominated for One Division. I know, um, but Ugh. she's great fun in it. Uh, Rita Moreno in West Side Story. Yeah. Good shit. But my winner is Anna Scottney from Cousins, yeah. who, who played the, the homeless cousin's young right. self. Uh, Anna Scottney is a, is a generational talent in acting terms in this country. She, she's, uh, she also works as a musician. She's great. She's good. Uh, seek out anything uh, she does. Yeah, that's not a film that I love, but I love, but she is like obviously really, really good in it. I have question marks around that film, a lot of which uh, can easily be answered with my uh, New Zealand uh, uh, film productions make a film that isn't adapting a book challenge 2021. Uh, I think, uh, I think a lot of the issues with that film come from 
it it being a book and right, it would yeah. work better as a book. Uh, and I understand it does. Who who who's coming out? Who's Paddington bringing out? To- oh well, P- P- Paddington is bringing three people out to the stage. Oh, or what? is it one person? It's Tilda Swinton in Sus- in Suspiria. <laughs> yeah. So my nominees are Swanky for Nomadland. <laughs> yes. Uh, Nomadland has kind of fallen by the wayside for for both of us. I think we both felt very strongly about that about eleven months ago. I had to take it out of running for some things because it won an Oscar for them. But like Swanky. A non-professional actor who is just yeah she, she's just this weird old woman who who Chloe Zhao yeah. found I guess and yeah she just gives this like this really like touching lovely like naturalistic human performance she's like pretty funny at points and just always a real like great screen presence and like fun to have around and Nomadland was on our combined list it was twenty first equal with City Hall it has just been. Uh, an odd and tumultuous year, and I think it has been a bit affected by the backlash against it, uh, which I think misinterpreted the film. I, yeah, I still think it's a very, very strong work. Mm. As happy as I am with our list of 16, like Minari, I think it is not counting films that aren't out here yet, th- the most notable absence. Mm. Um, uh, my second nominee is Leah Seydoux for No Time to Die and The French Dispatch. Two wonderful performances from her. She's she's one of my favorites. I will watch her in anything. Yeah. And she is especially good in both of these movies. In the French Dispatch, she is like really playing into into the like icy Frenchness that she's that she's so good at. In No Time to Die, she is like like a lot more vulnerable. She's always wonderful. And, and like her arc through No Time to Die, because early on I was a bit like, Are you really doing this with this character? But the way Sadu plays it, mm. especially knowing the the playing the dramatic irony that we all know this will end in tragedy yeah. when she's kicked off the Burj Khalifa by Paula Patton, <laughs> her and Craig just playing like the tender, like crackling, yeah. like gritty realism of their relationship. Leah Sadu also gets a uh, uh- it gets a bonus shout out on my uh, on my uh, hottest shit in a film this year list for uh, uh, when when James Bond shows up at her at her house and she's wearing that tank top. Great stuff. Uh, I I just yeah okay. So not the bit where she's naked being painted. Oh, like like that, that's 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 also good in the French Dispatch. The thing I specifically dwell on as hot as shit in that scene is how loving Benicio's gaze yeah. is. There's like a, a just like a great character moment for, for her in that bit where he's like going up to like test the paints out on her. He's like trying to pose her more perfectly. He's just like he's just poking her a bit too much. He just slaps his hand away. In- instantly, like switches the dynamic of of like muse and the artist and stuff. On my hottest shit, that's the top of my hottest shit yeah. for the year. And but like that comes from the fact that that I am someone who is also like a scruffy madman who has somehow gotten the best person in the world to love them and, and just like all you can do is just be in rapturous awe and try and make art expressing what is great about them number three is amy simitz in no sudden move uh yeah. I, again i saw, saw this movie six months ago i don't fully remember this performance that well but i remember her being really really good in it yeah she nervy housewife she yeah. does great yeah no she yeah she's good before i saw her in no sudden move i'd, I'd mainly just seen her in, in in like mumblecore movies which she's always which she's always good in but like don't often give her a lot of great stuff to yeah. do, but, but like her, her her like character is like a lot richer and a lot more complex in in, in no sudden move 
Uh, next nominee is Nina Maurice in Petite Maman, uh, playing the mother. Great. Yeah. And then uh, my, uh, my final nominee is Ariana DeBose for West Side Story, who plays Anita. There's a, there's so many great performances in West Side Story, yeah. but like the women especially. Obviously, America is like one of the best songs in the movie, and is one of the like great songs that like anyone got to sing. She like just absolutely kills it. She she is an incredible dancer. She is a great singer. The like dramatic scenes that she is given are she is fantastic in them. It's 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 one of those like star making performances. I'm I'm sure in like a year or two she'll be just like kind of popping up in everything. Yeah, oh, and she, she she's my winner. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. It was we should take a moment. Uh, it's slightly outside of the thing because like talking about America, uh, that performance of America just made me be like, and, and then seeing I'm so pretty in its proper place, and Sondheim had just died. Yeah, uh, and it was just being like. You know, the definite, like the best working definition of genius is, is the person who brings into a, the world something that wouldn't otherwise occur. Yeah. Jim, Jim Henson, uh, Orson Welles and Mank making Kane, uh, David Whittaker and Verity Lambert and Warris Hussein making Doctor Who. Sondheim making like America, that song that is, about both all the strengths and all the horrors of that country yeah. that that is happy and sad as as like a bit of work for hire when he was 24 years old and like the best compliment to him is that he is played by Bradley Whitford in Tick Tick Boom I hope we can all live lives as white men where we are eventually played by Bradley Whitford yeah. open brackets good not Bradley Whitford, open brackets, symbol of uh, endemic racism, close brackets, which, or, or sexism, which he's also good at. Quarter final number two. All right. We got two. Ah, these American guys, they, they make, you know, churning out stuff. Both stylists, one whose stylism is like, I'll just do fucking any style. Yeah. And the other is like, okay. I am getting a spirit level out, and if this shot is not the most meticulously symmetrical ever, I am going to throw my attack. I'm I'm going to kill another dog. (laughs) I'm going to kill another dog. It is the French Dispatch of the Liberty Kansas Evening Sun versus No Sudden Move. Three, two, one. French Dispatch. Yeah. Yeah. So here is the thing yeah. about No Sudden Move. No Sudden Move to me is uh, an incredible pot boiler. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It is like a grungy, grimy thriller. It's like, look, we got a bunch of fucking idiots. They're going to do a crime. You know it's going to go fucking wrong. Yeah. Every scene, someone's like, we need to do this thing. They try to do it. It gets wrong. And then there's something you as the audience know is going to come and make it worse. Yeah. And it's constantly escalating. And it's so good at that. Don Cheadle, who is like such an open and honest and trustworthy performance on screen, just killing it. Benicio Del Toro, mwah, I love you. Kind of giving the same performance he gave in The Last Jedi, where, where he's yeah. this kind of like weird, like shifty, kind of sleepy guy. 
David Harbour, Amy Simons, uh, uh, Julia Fox, Kieran Brendan Fraser, Kieran Culkin, yeah. Kieran uh, Culkin doing great. Yeah, Julia, F- like everyone. It's Ray, Ray Liotta. Oh, Ray Liotta, Matthew Damon. It's yeah. a Steven Soderbergh film. So Matthew Damon turns up for, for a scene in which he explains how one part of the system of the world is all oh, fucked. Yeah. One of now like like four or five movies where the twist is that Matt Damon's in it. It looks so good. Yeah. Soderbergh. He's got, he's got those like weird, like he's got those weird lenses. Yeah. Well, it's just, he's just like the whole film is about unease and awkwardness. Yeah. Right. And it has this really distinct look. And that essentially comes from him making all the wrong lens choices. So the, he's always picking a, a lens that's slightly too wide. So mm. you can see the barrel distortion and object. Yeah, yeah. Everything's bendy or you're just a bit too close to someone. It's all about awkward it has all these right bits ah, of energy it feels so good but it is to me it's a hamburger do you know what i mean and it is the best fucking hamburger i ate all year right yeah by by a country fucking mile do you know what i mean like that was wagyu beef that was uh sex buns (laughs) (laughs) that cheese that's right a cheeseburger was like uh, God's dick cheese. The pickle was Tommy Pickles from Rugrats. <laughs> the mayonnaise, it was Simon Mayo. <laughs> the ketchup was the joke from Pulp Fiction. Like, and, and like that is what Ed Solomons, the writer, and, and Soderbergh are aiming to do. Yeah. And they fucking nail it. And like it exists to be a catalog film on HBO Max. And they have done the best possible fucking job of making a catalog film on it for hbo max right whereas and i know this is a, gonna be a battle but like to me <laughs> uh, uh in a world where it is hard to answer this question the french dispatch is about why we should live <laughs> And it is, it is, and it is in every moment of it. And as much as it can get caught in the formalism, you know, the whole thing is laid out like a fucking magazine. Yeah. And like, I'm a massive fucking nerd. I, I've I edited a magazine for a year. I love that shit. Yeah. But none of that fucking matters. What matters is doing a whole story, which is Jeffrey Wright remembering a meal he had and the people he was with as it happened and being like, that is why you should be alive. And then managing within that to do just these incredible games where it is like, because the whole thing of the Jeffrey Wright one is he's being interviewed on a TV show. Yeah. Uh, and Liev Schreiber right. is like, okay, so uh, obviously you famously have one of the best memories ever. Can you just tell us one? One of the whole of your articles from the top of your head and he's like okay i will and that's the framing of yeah. it and but there is a moment within it where he goes like i am no longer speaking from mem- from memory and would like to editorialize <laughs> and it's full of just these beautiful like like textural games and a kid gets kidnapped and one of his kidnappers is Saoirse Ronan and it's basically a scene about like do you know why we should live because of the blues of people's eyes and the whole first story is about this this artist who 
basically falls in love with Leia Sedu yeah. and is just driven to do the these these abstract paintings which manage for maybe the first time to be fictional paint works of artwork where with people with Adrian Brody going like this is genius and, and, then- and you're like yeah all of Benicio's paintings are like <laughs> This is actually like good, like abstract modern art. And, and the middle story, it all about the joy of being young, but how that can get you stuck in the tumble of things, and also how being old can be both draws you to wanting to be young, but gives you perspective on it, and that that all builds to a moment where uh, Timothy Chalamet, Frankie McDormand, yeah. the the nomad from Nomadland, and uh, a French actress. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll find her name. Uh, Lena Kudry, and she, yeah, she, she is an Algerian actor. She's great. Yeah. Uh, uh, that plot essentially builds to the three of them having a three-way argument where each set a tri- as a triangle diagram, they are all having a separate argument, yeah. and then it builds to a point where they all essentially resolve all of their issues with Francis McDormand resolving three conversations at once in a rapid staccato set of statements encapsulating all of that mess in that one moment. Yeah, the reason to live is to play chess against the bad guys or to write manifestos or or to to ride a bike around a weird French town called Ennui. Ennui sur blasé. Yeah. I just, I, I, and I know, like, I don't want to get too dark. Mm. It has been a fucking tough year yeah. for, for everyone. What I am saying is that, like, this film is basically the equivalent of you're at a picnic table and your mate Wes Anderson uncorks or opens a bottle of something, pours your glass and goes like, man, do you know what's great? I love those New Yorker cartoons. And I've always thought I want to see them in animation. And I love car chases. And so what if I just had an animated car chase in the style of New Yorker cartoons? And like, oh yeah, it's just, it's like, it's not, I am not saying this saved my life or anything. But like, no sudden move is so, it is so taut. Yeah. It is so, it is this quartz of a film. Have I managed to sway you at all? I mean... I, I I don't know. I love Soderbergh a lot, and yeah, and yeah, like yeah. In, in my mind, there is no one currently working who is better at making a heist film than than, than him. This year, I, I rewatched all of all of the all of the Ocean's movies. I watched Out of Sight twice, and then I saw No Sudden Move. I I, I just tried to like fill in as many gaps in Soderbergh as I could. Like I finally saw Sex Lies and Videotape. Yeah, I, I watch I watched The Informant. Just like watched. Like as, as as much of the stuff as I could get my hands on. What I love about like what he's been doing for for, for the past like. Like ten or so years, especially is just like is 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 making retiring. Yeah, well, yes. Is, is, so actually, wait. Technically, since he's retired, this film doesn't exist. No, French not, Dispatch goes. No, I'm, not, I'm actually not sure that's correct. <laughs> okay. Uh, what I love about what what he's been doing for the past like ten years or so is making these kind of like weird, like intimate, low budget genre movies that are just about how in America. When you're trying to live your life, you will almost inevitably be fucking trampled into the dirt by capital. <laughs> That's what I love about about the Matt Damon scene. Like Matt Damon just comes out, like, "Hey, here's what's going on in this movie. You guys are fucked. You do yeah. not have you do not have a chance. 
you know, for, for people who don't know, it, it's it's a heist movie. It's set in, in Detroit in the 50s. It's set against the backdrop of, of like industrial espionage uh, uh, in the automotive industry. This, this is a time when they feel like they're like big free auto manufacturers and like ruled Detroit and ruled America. Just so that there's this like constant re- reiteration from, from Damon of like, no matter how well you think you've, you've pulled this heist off, you were never going to defeat us because we, we have had such a head start. It's one of Ed Solomon's best scripts. Yeah. Like, so, so Solomon is like pretty hit or miss for me. Like, I, I love, I love all the Bill and Ted movies. I think that, uh, I, I think that Men in Black is fine. And then I fucking hate the Now You See Me movies. This is like up there with, 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 with like Bogus Journey and Face of Music is like, yeah, like the the, the best the best shit he's ever done. Yeah, I think it does a really good job of being both as like incredibly like this like incredibly taut heist thriller, but, but also like really digging into the like weirdness and hypocrisy of like domesticity in fifties America. Yeah, and, and and without ever getting preachy on that subject. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's like a subplot about a housewife who's secretly a lesbian, and like that's that's the that's the like easiest shit to pull to be like oh yeah. the past, but like it. They fucking pulled off well because it's like Amy Simons and she's and she's amazing. What it gets into about like the like history and future of American capitalism and how it relates to the the environment and civil rights. I love all the shit it gets into there. Okay, so basically where we're at is that this is obviously an apples and orange situation yes. where the differences between like what we want from films right now. Yeah. So here is my proposal on how we solve it. Right. Uh, rock, paper, scissors. We will tell the audience what the other person has done so there's no cheating. Okay. So we report on each other. One, One two, two, three. three. Both One, did scissors. Yeah, both just, One, One, two, three. Both <laughs> we both did scissors, scissors again. again. One, One, two, three. Oh, fuck, both did rock. One, two, three. Both did scissors. Two rocks. One, two, three. Ah, uh, yep. His his paper cuts my scissors. Uh man, I don't. Well, I I worry. I seemed too harsh on uh, no sudden move. No, I bl- I, I blim and love this film. Yeah, I I love the French Dispatch. Yeah. It's it's a it's a it's a hilarious, really really beautiful movie. I love looking at any frame that that Wes Anderson and Adam Stockhausen have designed. I love looking at anything Robert Yeoman shot. The like thing that they're like Wes Anderson is one of the few like major directors who's still able to do this is like getting all of the best character actors of the world yeah. and like putting them inside meticulous frames and getting them to say things that are both moving and hilarious. Wes Anderson is absolutely one of my guys and he's never made a bad movie and this is another good movie from him. Yeah, you haven't watched Bottle Rocket yet. I haven't. That is the asterisk I'd put on he's never made a bad movie, but that's not a Wes Anderson film. It's actually a very weird watch. It's uh, got James Caan. Can't- yeah, it's not bad. Mm. It's like you can feel him uh, pretending right, a yeah. bit in it. Yeah, the structure. It is structured like a like like an issue. Uh, so we have articles and, and their stories mm. within it, and they nest. And, and and that hides, that is to trick us into thinking that there is not a story, a main story. But there is a main story. It is about, about the editor yeah. and how we meet him and, and the way we see him. Uh, uh, like these trickle, this trickle of details seen through g- gaps and inferences it is, I think, the, the best storytelling 
he's ever done. It's a really good, like, subtly told story about, like, about about this guy and, like, people who work for him mean to him and how he, like, shaped the lives of, of all these, like, creatives and, and artists. But also it, it is Wes Anderson giving a tribute to Bill Murray, his, yeah. you know, one of his longest collaborators at this point. Yeah. And, and just being like, I fucking love this dude and everyone loves this dude and, like, let, let's just make a movie about kind of how sad we're going to be when he goes. Yes. And also to writing mm, and, and yeah. journalism in a way that we will be sad when, when they go. Uh, the French dispatch uh, of the Liberty Kansas Evening Sun, I love you. And now our second intermission. And, and Paddington is, is there, uh, you remember? Mm, and, Pat Paddington. And he's doing so. What's he, what's he doing to, to introduce the, the intermission? Oh, he's, 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 he's doing some juggling. He's doing a bit of juggling, but he's juggling. Oranges, which is going to turn into marmalade. Oh yeah, uh, and, and oh yeah, he's just throwing them to to members of the audience, and they're 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 catching them, and they're doing that thing where you forget you're wearing a mask because yep. we're surrounded by masked people. They're all silent. Everyone with their masks still on is going to chomp down on those on those oranges. Yeah, and. Oh, just make a citrusy mess all over the floors of a Civic. And they're not getting that out anytime soon. Well, and and that all they better do- call a rug doctor. <laughs> Here's a little preview of what you can expect uh, in next week's episode: the, the the third and final part, the Father versus the Matrix Resurrections. Who will win? I don't know. I'm in the prison. We haven't decided yet. Best actor? Who is it? June versus Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0.1 thrice upon a time. Will that be uh, an incredibly extended uh, uh, debate? Then uh, best actress. Are we both going to give it to Meryl somehow? Then yeah, the first of our semifinals, writer, second semifinal, director, and then ho, what a final. I mean... Looking at uh, that pairing, which hasn't happened yet. No, there's no way for us to know what it is. It's a good one. Yeah. Uh, And so it only remains Finn. Yes. Where can people find you online? Who gives a shit? Uh, You can find the show on Twitter at ShiteSoundPod, or you can email us at ShiteSoundPod at gmail.com. Why not check out our website? It's at ShiteAndSound.com. If you like what I do... I'm Youther Lives on Twitter and Instagram. Put a bit.ly in front of that and you'll sign up for my newsletter. I have two other podcasts. One's called The Witching Hours. It's an audio anthology series like Twilight Zone. And the other is called The Slow Path, where me and my partner Briar uh, watch Doctor Who until we die. But it's more about me and Briar than it is uh, about Doctor Who. Our theme song playing under us right now, it's The Nux by Kazam Blam. You can check him out on Bandcamp or in several films. Yeah, Cousins or The Power of the Dog. Uh, if you like the show, uh, tell your friends. We're an acquired taste. It would be great if more people could acquire it. Movies are good. Go, Go watch them.